In this episode, we're going to talk about things that are real versus what is faked. A lot of this is based on questions because I mentioned, I guess I overly mentioned I reference movies too much. I did get a couple questions, made me think of some others that have been asked in the past, as well as good ideas and topics to discuss that are espionage and military related from people who are looking to join or just had other questions or comments about things we see in movies and video games. That'll be fun, as well as any other place or a book. What might be real? What might be fake? What should we expect or know better about? So real versus fake. And there's a lot of fake out there. Just like the news. It's a selling point. It's advertising. It makes things fun. But let's point out the differences. See what's real. See what's fake. That's what we're going to talk about right here in Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. This is always a fun topic, especially when I talk to people because... You always run into people think they know better, and I do it too, on things that I really don't know a lot about. I guess it depends on when you have the conversation, what you're willing to learn. So one example we'll use today is an email I got a while back at an answer from a guy named Jerry, who asked, are there any current or former weapons in the military that are overhyped in the civilian community? What I mean is, are they highly sought after? overpriced, overhyped, thought to be the cool new thing that the military either uses, doesn't use, or got rid of. Yes, there is, and there's quite a few. Now, some of them are just dated. You know, for example, I've mentioned the Breda 92 before. It's a great pistol. I mean, they weigh a lot. They're not as practical anymore, I would say. A lot of people own them. I wish I never sold mine. I enjoyed shooting it. But changing out from that to better firearms just because of the advent of technology is a good thing. But in its time, it wasn't that bad. Although there was probably still some that were better. But in modern firearms, asking that question, there's one that sticks out in my head all the time. And that's the FN SCAR. The FN SCAR, it's FN is Fabrizik National, and then SCAR is SCAR. It's a type of semi-automatic rifle, similar to the AR-15, doesn't quite look like it, that is fairly useless to a certain degree. What I mean by that is has a lot of flaws. You know, one example is just by looking at it, it's very bulky and it's very long, even when it has a shortened barrel on it. It's not practical for mobility use, especially indoors, and a lot of people didn't like them. I knew a guy, I didn't know him well, but he was a SEAL and he mentioned, I don't know if they were deployed at the time or not, but what they were doing was getting a lot of range time because they were having issues to document round counts and how many malfunctions they had in order to get their team or maybe their platoon, whoever it was, to get rid of it and go back to AR-15s or some other firearm. The thing is, it has a lot of issues with malfunctions, failures to feed, failures to eject, even double feeds, which aren't that common. Most people just misuse that term, but no big deal. But it has a lot of issues. And when I say has a lot of issues, I ran into them myself when I've shot the firearm before. I personally have shot both calibers. Originally, it was only two calibers. Maybe there's more now. But the 7.62 had more issues to me than the 5.56, but they both had issues. It was not uncommon for anybody to get one or more malfunctions per magazine or three or four magazines or three or four malfunctions by the time they got through two or three magazines. That's too many. Too many for a warfighter to deal with. Another issue is it has a thing called a reciprocating bolt. And basically the bolt has a knob on it like a charging handle to help you either charge, clear the weapon, do different things. And it's uh, ambidextrous, I believe. 
part of the issue I'd ran into, and I'm not the only one. For those that understand this, I'll try to explain it. There's a thing called a magwell hold, where if you look at a rifle that has a magazine, like the AR-15, the part of the weapon the magazine goes into, and you see part of the magazine kind of disappear inside, is called your magwell. And there are times when the way you would hold your rifle with your non-shooting hand is you would take your non-shooting hand and kind of wrap it around that magwell. When you did that, what would happen naturally and was to your benefit is when you'd grab it, your thumb would go straight up. And then depending on the shooting situation, how you're maneuvering or whatever, you might twist your hand a little bit and get your thumb kind of down the barrel. But to some degree, that thumb was still up. Even wrapping around the barrel sometimes or maybe just kind of hanging there loosely, well, that reciprocating bolt would smack your thumb and you could break it and it hurt. And that was a huge issue. And that's not a training thing. I don't see that as a training fault. There are situations where the way in which you hold a firearm matter and make it better for you in that situation. So I don't think it's a training issue. So it's overhyped because part of their marketing was they were trying to sell rifles to the military. They were trying to make a better rifle. And some people in the military got that rifle and then they could use that as marketing and say, hey, we got these cool guys in the military using our rifles and then people want to buy them. And they're pretty pricey. Even the price range they're at now, there's far better AR-15s you can buy by several makers. So that's just the number one that comes to my mind. I'm not sure. I understand why people buy them. I do. And they're fun to shoot. Most guns are fun to shoot. But there's a difference between having anything, whether it's a, a firearm or whether you want to call it a tool or say it's an automobile, that is fun to have and fun to use, but doesn't make it practical. You know, it's not practical to take a half-ton pickup truck and try to get in a race with a guy that has a sports car. But that pickup truck has uses. So it just depends on who you are and what you want. I don't slight people for buying them. I just try to show them things if I'm around them or get them to explain that, you know, even if you like it in the future, don't buy anything just because a famous person endorses it or some organization uses it, especially when it's coming from the maker and seller of that item because they're not telling you those things because they're in your best interest. They're telling you that because it's in their best interests. If they were more honest about it, they would come forward with all these types of people. They say love and rave their weapons and then have them show you the issues with them and possible ways to work around or things a company's doing to fix them. So that being said, moving on, I've had people before in the past ask about joining the military. In fact, I did that big intro once and a guy who was looking to join in the reserves who was in college, probably should have made that a separate episode. I've had other people ask me this and it comes from a question I got asked a long time ago, but there's other people that have sent me messages recently related to video games and the military. And some of them, I don't know them, but I guess I had a kind of a prejudice towards gamers figuring they're mostly younger even though most of the gamers I know are older and the things they believe to be true but some of them were pretty smart about it and they would say things about the games and what they were pretty sure was unreal or impractical but they wanted to know whether their general knowledge or one guy that wanted to join the military what they could look forward to so there's things in video games that should be obvious for example there's one first person shooter I don't remember the name of it but you you parachute in and you have nothing. You don't even usually have clothes unless you like win a pair of pants or something. You land on the ground, you run to a building, and as you run through the building, you start finding things, firearms, ammunition, helmets, body armor, you know, all these different things you're going to need in the game. And no matter where you go in the game, 
you're going to find these in every building out there. That's just part of the way the game's played. And these guys knew on this specific game, I think it's PUBG, but whatever it is, he's like, I know that can't be realistic. You're going to jump in with all your gear. And I was glad he knew that. But they want to know things in video games we see that aren't realistic. The biggest one has to do with ammunition. Um, specifically how ammunition works. So in a video game, you have a, you have a rifle, and let's say that rifle holds thirty bullets. It's a thirty round magazine, right? And you've picked up, you have a total of one hundred rounds. The way the game works, let's say you fire ten rounds, you have twenty left in your magazine. A smart player who doesn't need to fire anymore will reload that magazine so it's a full thirty round because it's better for the game. That's not what happens in real life because in real life to do that, you don't carry loose ammo. You'd have to take ammo out of another magazine and put it into that one. So it would make more sense to switch magazines. However, unless there's a lot of shooting going on or it's a situation where you ran through most of your magazine, there was only 20 rounds left, they're going to keep that in there. And they probably have a good idea, especially what I call pro shooters in the military, probably have a good idea about how much ammo they have in there. So what can realistically happen, uncommon, but what could happen in real life in a gunfight is you could be in a situation where you use, let's say you use 25 rounds, roughly, and you don't need to shoot anymore, and you realize I probably only have a few rounds left. You'll take that mag out, and you'll put in a fresh 30-round mag. So you'll still have a magazine sitting there with probably five rounds in it, but you'll have other fully loaded mags, and you have to keep track of that. Now, could it happen multiple times to where you have, say, five magazines, four of them only have five rounds, and one is fully loaded? That's possible. I'm sure that's probably happened, but it's not common. But you don't just magically have constantly loaded magazines. That's not realistic at all. I'd be interested to see, because I play video games sometimes, and I'm a big gamer. I enjoy them. When they start taking up too much of my time, then I quit playing. But I watch video games on YouTube. I watch guys playing them just because I like hearing them talk trash to each other, and it's fun to see what you can do. That's To me, it's completely unrealistic, but some of it's kind of neat. It would be interesting to see a video game like that where when they came out, they made it that way to where you just don't magically have a fully loaded magazine that if you choose to change magazines, you're still carrying one that only has like five rounds or eight rounds in it. I think that would change the game a little bit. Would it make it more realistic? No, there's so much stuff in there and it's not realistic. Another thing about video games are weapons that aren't firearms. People carry knives, uh, but carrying like tomahawks or knives and throwing them and hitting people and knocking them down especially when they're soldiers that have a lot of gear and probably body armor that's not realistic the distances in which they can throw those or having like bows and arrows and crossbows like rambo fun in the game but not realistic because those aren't issued people don't have that stuff not realistic at all at least for modern military first person shooters i'm sure there's some out there where you can play a soldier from a time period where that would make sense but most first-person shooters now are more modern or futuristic. Those things, those don't really exist. The biggest thing that people don't realize and typically don't realize unless somebody takes them to a gun range is in video games, if you have a, a rifle, typically you'll have a full auto function. Pull down, hold down the trigger, bullets come out until you stop. And if you were to use semi-auto, meaning pull the trigger every time, which on a video game you'd be hitting the button every time, You'll probably die. You won't hit your target. And you'll be less accurate. Whereas with full auto, you'll probably do better. There's all kinds of ammo to find, and you're more accurate. That's the complete opposite of reality. 
fully automatic weapons are not that effective. Most of your bullets are going to miss even at close range. It's difficult to control no matter who you are and to do it repetitively, especially with larger caliber weapons and without training. So it's easier to shoot like a full auto MP5, which is a nine millimeter than it is to shoot a full auto AK-47. Of course, if you've never been trained or nobody told you anything about MP5, you might have an issue controlling it when you first pick it up. And speaking of the MP5, that's a very common weapon for those who know what it is in video games. And they're cool. They're fun to shoot, especially the suppressed one. I've had a lot of good times shooting those. However, comma, they're completely worthless, really, in, in combat. There's a lot of times they were used in the past. And there's a lot of older movies where they have them. We see modern movies now, and guys are going in, clearing rooms with a full auto 9mm. It's not the firearm you want in a war zone shooting people. It's not that effective. It's because of the bullet more than anything. Now, this next one I have is not named with a you know, unique email address, but all they asked is to, for all the times I've mentioned movies like 007 and Jason Bourne, what they ask is, you've mentioned this a few times, what are the things that are somewhat realistic and what are the things that are fake in movies like that? Dog's freaking out over there. So I'll cover some of the things I've mentioned in the past. I think most of these I've mentioned before, but looking at a movie like uh, the Jason Bourne series. So things that are somewhat realistic. The ways in which they fight is similar to the training you get in multiple disciplines. The idea of the fight where it's quick, you want it over quickly. It's not as pretty because in a movie it's choreographed. It is a little bit chaotic. Part of the way they film it makes it look chaotic, but also because both people get thrown around and you can tell get hurt a little bit or get bruises. You know, they get both get hit. That's realistic. Things like in that movie where in one of them he rolls up a magazine, uses a weapon or uses a pen, basically making anything a weapon is realistic. But no matter how cool or not cool you think those fights are, they wouldn't be as pretty as they are in the movies. Something else that's realistic and unrealistic at the same time, in the first one I've mentioned how he goes to a bank, I think it's in Switzerland, that because he has amnesia, he gets in the safety deposit box, he's, you know, he's got a gun, he's got his color contacts, but in there he has multiple passports and IDs. It's realistic for some people who work in places like CIA to have multiple identities. And if they did have that many, because they will have probably more than one available to them all the time, however many they would have, they would not store them all in the same location because if that location gets burnt or you can't get in there or whatever happens, you could lose all of those. So why they wouldn't all be kept in a bank necessarily, let's use that analogy and say you had five IDs and you were going to keep them in a bank. You wouldn't keep them in one bank. You'd keep them in five banks, five banks you could get to. So that'd be one huge difference. So multiple identities, sure. All in one location, absolutely not. Another thing in the movies that people think are not realistic, but is, is in one of the movies, he sits down in a diner with a girl. I think it's the first one because he's talking about his amnesia and mentions, basically he's describing situational awareness. I know this many license plates outside. I can tell you how much this guy weighs. I know this guy can handle himself. I know it's a salvation. I'm physically capable of doing this. Basically, the general idea of that level of situation is, situational awareness is very realistic for people to have the training. They can do that. So that is something people think that's not real. No, it's that's definitely real. 
there's several scenarios and training exercises where you go through and do stuff like that, or that gets added into the training to add something else on where you try to learn and remember and identify all these things where you could go into a room and it could be a normal room and there's people in there and you have to remember as much stuff as possible. And you learn little things like, you know, I, I remember there was a bookshelf with four rows of books on the left, but then they say, yeah, but what were the titles of the books or what was the title of the big red book? You know, things like that. There is training for that. So as much as people think it's unrealistic, it's actually very realistic. I don't know about the specifics of what he said, but things like that are, are very real because the training exists. One of the things I thought was interesting in that movie, though, that it was pretty cool because they kind of make fun of him for it, but he takes the girl to a hotel or something and he's not going in because they're looking for him and he explains to her what to do when she goes in. You know, find a point, make this many steps so you know this, identify this, how many people work in there, are there phones, are there security cameras? He goes through this whole basic situational awareness assessment of all these things that probably not realistic for her to remember having no training. And it's to get to a point to get enough information where he calls like the service phone. She relays that information that he would have if he was in there and then tells her what to do in order to get some piece of paper from them that has information. So when he makes the call in the movie, she doesn't answer. He's starting to panic and she shows up at the phone outside where he's at. And he's like, what went wrong? And she's like, nothing. It just kind of struck me. And I went up there and said, I work for the guy that we're getting information on and I needed that piece of paper and they just made me a copy. So it's funny because there's things about what he was describing to do that are similar to methods you could use for situational awareness for that kind of thing. But the reality of the situation is now granted in the movie, he's being looked for, but most people could do what she did and just have a very simple cover story for five minutes to go in and talk yourself through a situation to get what you want. That's essentially what it's like when you're getting information from people. Cause a lot of times when you get in information, you're not running a source or an asset. Movies think that's what happened, but it's a lot like what she did. She needed something from this random person for being in the building less than five minutes for probably a 90 second interaction. And she came up with a story and got what she needed because most people want to believe people are good people and they most people want to help other people. Plus her being a woman and him being a man, natural humanity is help the woman. So it was funny to me how they did that in the movie, but what she did is more likely to happen. Although in the, in the story, of course, he's being looked for. It wouldn't make sense for him to do that. He would do what he's trained to do, the way the movie set up his training. But it was an interesting scene. Another question I got asked recently, I've been asked this before, but it had to do with racism in the military because it's now a hot topic. I think racism or extremism, I think is the big one. So racism is real. I never deny that. And it does exist everywhere to some degree. I have seen several people that were prejudiced and several that were outright racist. There is no like predominant race that was more racist than the other. Not like there was 20 times and 18 of them were white. It wasn't like that. It was fairly evenly distributed. I would say most of it was ignorance based on how people were brought up. And most of the people that I saw to do it were very young. They were probably under 21 and probably just been in the military. And several situations came from parts of the country where whether they were the ones that were targeted or they targeted others, whether they realized it was right or wrong, 
was the culture in which they grew up in. And for them, and there's a lot of times it was in small towns or small communities where they didn't travel much. It was very real for them. They just translated it to that was probably the case everywhere, which is unfortunate. It's not their fault. It is a natural human reaction. But the military actually at those times, when I was first in Hawaii, when I first saw it for three years, they helped a lot with the programs we had in the education and a lot of the leaders and NCOs and soldiers of different ranks would have conversations with people to help them understand things. I didn't see that very much in the last few years of my career. I, I didn't see it even in the last few years I was in the infantry when I was in E7. So it's, it's there. But I saw some interesting things that I would say are cultural, but not racist. And I could be wrong, it could be racist, but I think these were cultural. One example I've used is we have a thing in the Army. It's called the Non-Commissioned Officers Education System. Basically, when you start becoming an NCO, um, when you're a sergeant and you're moving on to staff, sergeant, sergeant, first class, master sergeant, sergeant major, there's schools you'll go to to learn general things about being a non-commissioned officer, regardless of your job, which is called your MOS, and then some things will be MOS specific. So when I went to the infantry school, one of the things we had at the time were four infantry jobs. There's only two now, but there was four. And we went to the mechanized infantry school or training area for one day. We went one day to each one to learn some differences and things that not everybody was exposed to. So mechanized infantry guys were infantry guys, like you've seen a movie, carrying rifles, fighting the war. But they worked heavily around armored vehicles like armored personnel carriers, M113s, and then uh, Bradley fighting vehicles. And of course, there's mechanized guys there and they would help out. And then, you know, we went and did the mortar thing. Mortar guys would help us out. And we just kind of played around like that. So we took a break after going through a couple of vehicles. And we go outside for our 15 minutes. Some are smoking, some are not. And I noticed there was groups of people in circles. Now, there was a bunch of us there. There must have been, I don't know, two or three platoons. There must have been 50, 60 people, I think. So there were several circles of people. And I walked through them all to the last one and listened to them talk, and I realized there was a circle of guys, and it was funny how they naturally came together, because they didn't, you would know in your platoon by meeting people at this point which infantry job they had, but you didn't necessarily know the other platoons, but they kind of naturally congregated together. So all the guys wearing red berets were in a circle. Those were all the guys in the Airborne, from the 82nd Airborne Division. They congregated together. The exception to that was a couple of those guys were over with some other guys, that were wearing berets or not wearing berets that were all rangers, all ranger tabs. There was a group of guys who were mechanized infantry. A group, a small group was mortarmen. Another small group were the um, 11 hotels, tow missile guys. A larger group were the light infantry guys because the regular 11 Bravos was the largest group. Another group, though, two other, the two other last groups were ethnicities. One was Hispanic, and then the other one was black. And I didn't think of that as being racist. I just thought that was a cultural difference. I think what stood out to me was there wasn't a circle of white dudes. And there was people that were Hispanic and black that were in those other circles. So there was guys that were black or guys that were Hispanic, because they were all men, that if they were rangers, they didn't stand with their ethnic group, if that's what you want to call it. They stood with their job or the guys with the tab or the guys that were airborne. I saw a lot of things like that. And I know racism is real and I've seen it. But in my experience, some of the stuff's blown way out of proportion by certain people, usually the media. 
That's not to say there aren't horrible things that happen. And thankfully, some of those do make the news. So things can be done about them because unfortunately, they're not always taken care of appropriately. I had a friend who was in the army, good friend of mine. He's Native American. He was targeted significantly by his boss, who was white, who blatantly and directly said very known racist statements beyond just making a joke that's inappropriate, calling this guy names. And this was 15 years ago before this whole woke whatever bullshit's going on now. And the thing is, even if it happens now, because I've heard in the last few years things similar to this happening, it's amazingly how difficult it is to have that addressed. And how much when you're making the complaint, you are warned about what can happen to you if it doesn't turn out to be justified and if you can't get the witnesses. And the hard thing is, is it's not always racism. A lot of times with sexual assault, sexual harassment. A lot of times if there's five guys in a room, one of them basically being victimized essentially, one of the other four is doing it and the other three are standing there not intervening, probably the one doing it, most cases, is actually higher ranking and those three people are going to back them up. And it's shitty, but it's because they're cowards. Doesn't always happen, but even if those other three came to back that dude up, that other person had a higher rank, nothing's ever happened before. And they look at this, well, they've been around this long, we've never heard this before, they got a great record, they're a good soldier because they do A, B, and C, they have good evaluations, it makes it more difficult. Which is part of the system, but also unfortunate. And a lot of times the corrective action, as they call it, that's taken is re-education, which is shitty because they don't address it appropriately and the education system on it sucks because if it was good, this stuff would happen a lot less and be dealt with a lot more. But I have seen that. So I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying there's a lot of situations where it's sold like it's a culture and environment in the military, and that's not fair. There are times where it gets bad enough, like we saw recently in Texas with sexual assault, sexual harassment, where it finally came to light that it's a lot bigger problem than people realize. And unfortunately, they think that was only going on there when that's very real everywhere. So it exists. And there's some places where it's a much bigger deal happening more often than people realize. But military-wide, at the level it's preached at, no. That is not the case. I did get one. I didn't open it, but was thanking me for a recommendation for the FNG Academy for a guy who was former Special Forces who gears his entire YouTube channel around helping people prepare to be in Special Forces and learn more about it for those in the Army that want to go that route. And something... Something that was said, I think, in one of the videos or maybe something I said. Oh, it was his gray man video where he said you shouldn't be a gray man on a special forces team, which you shouldn't. Wanted to know when should you be a gray man in the military. There's one time when it can be advantageous, and that's when you're learning, meaning when you're in boot camp or basic training. Does not mean it's always going to work and doesn't mean you should go out of your way to try to do that. And by gray man in that situation, I'm not talking about all the things I teach here. Because you definitely don't want to go in and look for deception because it's loaded with deception. It's part of the training. You know, you don't want to challenge people on that. You don't want to try to read their body language. You're there to learn, to learn a job, to do what you're told and try to get through it, get assessed and realizing even there, a lot of the assessments are not on what you're doing. Many of them are. Most of them are on what you actually are doing, but some of them are more than that. But the idea of being gray, meaning just the idea of going unnoticed you're there, but you're not standing out. Just that simply can be a good thing. There's times when standing out can be good for you, and there's plenty of times where it's bad. And a lot of people do the same things all the time where 
you know, somebody gets in trouble, so they get smoked, as we'd say in the Army. They get down, they start running them through exercises until they can't do it anymore, and then they make them go longer. And then everybody always gets the idea, well, we'll do it as a group. That's Everybody's going to do it. It's always a bad idea because there's no point in it. But, um, and it doesn't build a camaraderie. People think that does. But there, that can work to your advantage. But after that, it's pointless. Not saying you need to go to your way to stand out, but... Once you get through your boot camp or basic training and then you go to learn your job and then you go to a unit to serve however long your time is, it's a job. You want to do your job well. You want to get paid more. You want to get promoted. You want to get the benefits out of it. Maybe you want to go to college. Maybe you want to be an officer one day. Maybe you got aspirations for like special operations. Maybe you want to be an officer. Whatever these things are, you have goals you should be working towards. And the thing is, a lot of the opportunities that are given to you, even when they're small and seem insignificant, come because of your performance, attitude, and how you behave at work, which is a fair part of the assessment. And if your whole time you're just being gray, what that really boils down to is you're just being average. You're not terrible. You do everything you're supposed to do, but you don't excel. You're not putting in the extra effort. You're not showing what you're capable of doing. You're not going to get a lot of those opportunities because you don't deserve them. Now, there are people that fall in that category that aren't doing that on purpose. That's who they are. That's why there's a place for everybody in the military. There's a reason you need a certain amount of average soldiers. And the thing is, you could have the most stellar group of soldiers in the world in the same platoon. Some will stand out more than the others. Some will not do as well as the majority. Therefore, a large portion of the middle will be average in that group of people. Whereas that group could be split among 50 platoons or 20 platoons, however big it is, and they could all be stellar in those different locations. So in the military, that's not what you want to do. You want to look at it as a job. You're getting paid. You're getting benefits. You can get paid more. You can get promoted. You can go to schools. You can go to college. You can get more military training. If you're just hanging around being average and doing it on purpose, unless that makes you happy, you're going to leave disgruntled thinking you didn't get all these opportunities. But at the end of the day, it's because you didn't try to get those opportunities. You didn't prepare for those opportunities. You didn't work for them. Here's a good question I got from another, I guess, anonymous email. What would a video game be like if military guys made it? Well, I'm not sure. I imagine some military guys have tried to help out. I think a large portion of it would be boring. Because they would focus a lot on reality, which means there'd be a lot of mission planning, which some of that could be good. It would focus a lot more on communication, which could be a good thing when you have multiple people there. There's things that wouldn't be as fun about it because in first person shooters are shooting other people. There wouldn't be as much of that. You know, a lot of the crazy weapons or crazy things you do would go away. You wouldn't be standing on a seven story rooftop on the edge holding up a 50 caliber Barrett looking around for two or three minutes wide shouldered and then shooting some dude from several hundred yards who's driving a Humvee and, you know, hitting him. That kind of, all that kind of stuff would be gone. It would be geared more around to military type actions. Even if the graphics are great, they'd probably model it heavily off of things that there no exist or have seen in the military, which might be boring probably would incorporate a lot of interaction with people trying to get information to find targets, which would be similar, similar, but not much similar, not be similar, but probably not as good as real life. And the thing is, those things have been created as training simulation scenarios for the military. 
or their biggest benefit is really the communication people use. I've seen them done with aircraft, armored vehicles, convoys, other types of stuff. There was even a video game that was released on major platforms once that was, it's much older now and a lot of people liked it. It was designed originally to help military. But I don't think anymore with the way games are done now that it necessarily would sell well. I think you'd have to find a happy medium bringing in people that are gamers and make this kind of stuff and all that group of people and then military guys. And it'll probably take a long time to make a lot of things better. And they'd still have to find a happy medium could come out to be more realistic, but I don't know. I honestly, I, I don't think people say they want more realistic versions of those games. You don't, you really, really don't. Okay, the last one is about physical fitness, and it was asked by a kid who is 15. He's looking at going into the military, and the short version of his email was, how important is physical fitness? You know, because playing video games, what do you have to do to get in the type of shape you'd realistically be in a video game? Well, first of all, there are people out there in certain units, and there are certain individuals in many units that are in great physical shape and trained for war. They can do a lot of things, a lot of conditioning, a lot of strength, and put a lot of time and effort to it. It's not the majority by any means. But things in video games that are generally not going to happen with almost anybody, although there's a few probably could do it. One of the things is, and some of those games are carrying a lot of weight. They're in environments where it's hot or muggy, which isn't really accurately portrayed in games, which affects your breathing, your endurance, the stuff you're wearing, the weight you're carrying, how well you can move. The physical condition comes in a lot. Then you add in some of these games, you're not using vehicles and you're running all over the map to where in a game you could run miles at full speed, dead sprint, carrying all that weight, not getting injured. That's not going to happen. Not in the 20, 30 minutes of gameplay. So that's to say that, yes, physical fitness is very, very important. Like if you look at, um, not a knock on police officers, but there's generally a standard test for most law enforcement in this country called the Cooper test. I believe they've changed it. And I don't think it was changed for the better. I think it was changed because people couldn't pass the Cooper test. The thing was the original Cooper test, which was like some pull-ups, push-ups, sit-ups, and a run or something, to the military would be called not doing nothing. And I think it hurts law enforcement. The other thing is in the military, at least in the Army, physical fitness is treated less and less seriously they've tried redoing their testing system a few times in fact 10 15 years ago they came up with a pretty decent program they ran people through at ncs courses even drill sergeants that was very elaborate but when i went through it and then ran people through it for a couple of years it was actually effective especially for people who were working on losing weight working on flexibility working on their cardiorespiratory fitness was very helpful and i think it's a good program that probably should have stayed and then advanced more had more advancements or requirements as you moved on. Military can't handle that because people can't do it. So I went back to the standard push-up, sit-up, two-mile run, and then now it's been changed again. Units are training for it. I think it's a better test. But at the end of the day, the level of physical fitness you need for war, everybody should smoke that test, in my opinion. Most people are not really that in shape. And it's treated as though... 
it's talked about as though it's an, a standard across the board, but it's treated differently based on the job you have. People just don't care or focus on it that much when you're some sort of office worker or support asset compared to they do for the guys on the ground with firearms fighting the war, which is unfortunate because in my time, at least, because I've been out for a few years, looking at what it was then, what we call combat arms were doing and putting into their physical fitness should have been the bare minimum for everybody else in the army. And then the combat arms guys probably should have had a higher standard in certain areas because of what their job required. Those are just my thoughts. But, you know, when I was training guys here that were recruiting and sending to JSOC for a few months at a time in the last couple of years, all I saw was fatter and fatter soldiers, less fitness levels. Like they were running out of breath, just walking from the barracks to the office, which wasn't that far. It was like three quarters of a mile. Easy walk. You know, they were sweating too much at times a year when they shouldn't be. They were complaining about the types of PT they were doing, which was a joke. And weren't striving to get into better shape. And then some of these guys had aspirations in their head about things they wanted to do in the intel community. And while I would talk them through some stuff, I would just beat them up on fitness and be like, look, you're not cutting it in a fitness level. It doesn't matter how good you are at your job, even if... That isn't a requirement or is a requirement because you don't have the physical fitness levels to get through that training. And that was the thing I saw. And the other thing was less and less of them were doing PT on their own. And it seemed like everybody did that when I was in the infantry. Of course, I mainly only knew infantry guys. When I got into military intelligence, hardly anybody did. And then these guys were essentially the cream of the crop. And I don't know... At first, I'd say at first I didn't know if they just took kind of the physical component out for consideration and just looked at how they did in school to pick them up for this. And I thought that was shitty and they needed to bring that back. Come to find out it was factored in. And that just told me how much worse the force was in physical fitness levels. And it's unfortunate, but that's the reality. So it is very important. I would say you don't want to hurt yourself, but if you're looking at a branch of service, they're going to have some sort of physical testing requirements for physical fitness. Some are different than others, or they're all different than others, but their requirements change because of your job or how often they do stuff. I would say look at whatever their current testing is, and especially if it's going to be a while before you're joining, start getting into a physical fitness regimen at whatever level you are and whatever opportunities you have and start working towards completing those events and getting better at them. Even if you're not sure, because everybody thinks they do a good push-up, even if you're not sure if you're doing good push-ups, if you don't do push-ups, do the push-ups and try to do, you know, however many you need to do and, and work on doing more. People that are athletes in school, especially any type of conditioning, like people that run track or play football, it's not just them, but looking at those two, tend to do better when they show up in the military when it comes to physical fitness requirements because they've been very physically active and athletic for usually many years, if not since childhood. Now, there's plenty of people that aren't athletic at all join the military and basically become that way in just a matter of weeks because of the training that's there. But don't rely on hoping that you can just show up being a fat Burger King kid and you're going to be a PT stud in you know eight weeks or 16 weeks or however long you're in boot camp or basic training. That would be a mistake. Work on it now because the earlier you work on it and build up that consistency, you build up kind of the uh, repetition, you build up the habit. 
And it, it's better to be the guy in the military that's like, I really wish we could go work out on our own or go to a gym. It's unfortunate we can't do that and we have to sit in here and shine boots and wax floors or whatever they do now. It's better to be that guy than be the guy like, oh my God, we got to run two miles tomorrow. That fucking sucks. I hate it. I want to go to sick call. You don't want to be that guy. You're starting out on the wrong path. And this feeds into the last one about prepping. I should have talked about it there. For those that like the prepping conversations, there is a correct answer as much as I say there isn't right answers as much. There is a right answer to the question, what's the number one failure among people that are prepping, no matter what they're prepping for or preparing for, and that is physical fitness. It's the number one failure in this country. Obesity problem, all kinds of issues. Number one fucking failure is physical fitness. Doesn't matter how you look at it. Doesn't matter what situation you're preparing for. Doesn't matter what you're trying to do in life. There's so many positive benefits to physical fitness and being physically active. So many negative ones that I don't need to get into because I'm not an expert, but I could say a lot of common, common knowledge usually to prove things and eat up a couple hours. But most of them are not fit. I don't care how much crap they have. I don't care where they live. I don't care if they got a magic bunker somewhere or they got a bunch of guns or you know, they know how to do every little skill you would need to survive. If they're out of shape, they're going to have a hard time. They're not going to last as long. And even if they just get a cut on their finger, they can't properly treat or they get a little sick. Not being as healthy and physically fit affects your immune system's ability to help you stay healthy and fight off whatever's going on. So for that question that I've been asked, there is a right answer. Physical fitness is the number one failure, not just in this country, but for anybody in that community. And at least for the Army, because I can't speak for the other branches. It's probably not their number one failure, but it's in the top five. So there you have it. A few little fake and reality things. If you got other questions like this, you can send them to me, and I will address them either as a whole show or individually. Also, if you get a chance, shoot me one of those voice mentors on Anchor FM or on the Anchor app. Ask me your questions, whether it's about the open source challenge, something like this, something about gray man topics. Tell me you like the show. Tell me you hate the show. Tell me something you want to learn more about. And I will do my best to answer those. It helps me out because I know I'm doing things you want. And that's kind of the goal of the show. Maybe it's entertainment. Maybe you're learning something. Maybe you're putting this stuff into practice. I just like to know what it is because it motivates me. And if you can't do that, just tell me what you want to hear more about because that motivates me too. If you like this episode, don't forget us a like, share, heart, whatever your platform is using, and make sure you let people know you think will enjoy this material. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're at. And don't forget to check out the show notes and check out dmrpublications.com. And we will be back again shortly with more information right here on Grayman, Hiding in Plain Sight.